This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Amal Bishara. She's an anthropologist at Tufts University. She's Palestinian-American and currently on sabbatical in the Ida refugee camp where she's done research and her husband grew up. I spoke with her on March 16, 2011 at the Laji Center, a youth center based inside the Ida camp, which is in the West Bank city of Bethlehem. This interview is included in our show, Pleasure More Than Hope. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. So we just as we started, I just want to hear a little bit of your story and your background. So uh-huh. your family was Palestinian. Were you what were first generation, second generation American, or how did what's that back? What's that connection to here? My father came to the states in 1966 from here. Um, he's an Israeli citizen, uh, so he was born and raised in the Galilee. Okay. My mom's Swedish American. Oh, all right. <laughs> so actually, all the women in my family have married men born abroad. Um, the first two generations, my great-grandmother came when she was about three. My grandmother, and, and she married a Swede who came when he was like, I don't know, 15 or 20. Then my grandmother married my grandfather who came when he was 20, also from Sweden. And then my mother broke the mold and married a Palestinian. And then <laughs> okay. I married a Palestinian also born abroad. All right. And so what was the spiritual or religious background to your childhood? My father is Roman Catholic. Um, my mother is Lutheran. Um, they did not baptize me. This was the 70s and whatever. Um, so I really did not have much of a religious background. Okay. In fact, a few years ago when I was going to be the bridesmaid for my cousin's wedding, um, there was a little bit of hubbub in the village because they knew that I hadn't been baptized. And this was a Roman Catholic wedding, and, and so they were a little unhappy about that. But I think my cousin chose me because she knew that I am so much out of the circle because she herself is, is kind of a radical. Okay. So I think she wanted like a, somebody who didn't fit in. All right. Yeah. So, so tell me what your sense of um, – what did Palestinian identity mean to you when you were, when you were a child and then as you, as you grew up? You know, I think a lot of it was about politics when I was a kid. I think it was about politics and food and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, which sounds like it covers a lot, um, but I think as I got older, certainly that sense of what uh, Palestinianness is about has gotten a lot deeper, mm-hmm. although it's still a lot about politics, food, and family, <laughs> kind of unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. Did you come here when you were a child? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I came when I was, um, every two or three years, starting when I was about two. My mother came with me alone because my dad was unable to visit for political reasons. So your mother, your non-Palestinian mother, came, brought you here. Yeah. Twice, which was, I think, a little bit bold of her, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Although, again, that was to inside Israel. So the circumstances there are are in some ways um, easier. Although in the 70s, it wasn't like an American, um, you know, it wasn't like having your toddler in in Connecticut, you know, for example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you been here with your father since then? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He started coming. He comes almost every year now. Mm -hmm. So what changed for him that he was able to come back? Um, Internal political issues, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, since I was seven, he's been able to come back. So okay. that's, what, 30, mm-hmm. not quite 30 years. Um, do you think that your uh, that your sense of your identity, in fact, you have a kind of a mixed identity, that that was part of your attraction to anthropology? Or, mm. uh, was, do, do, did that play into it? Or? Well, one way I explain my interest in anthropology is my father is so political science oriented. And in fact, most people who look at this conflict are really political science oriented or history oriented. Mm-hmm. And I think coming here and just getting sort of the glimpses of Palestinian society that I got, you know, hanging out with my cousins playing Uno, which we could play because I spoke enough Arabic to know the colors and the numbers, you know, 
I realized there was a lot more going on that I felt didn't enter into those political discussions. And mm-hmm. so anthropology was sort of my way of, of investigating kind of everything else, you know? Right. So well, let me just find you. There was something you wrote about, it was about how anthropology could inform journalism, right? And you said, um, news media focuses on spectacular events. Mm. It doesn't highlight diversity in Middle Eastern societies or explain the political and social processes, or even I would add the human processes or dynamics, you know, Uh that lead up to the events. I mean, I think what we've seen happen now in Tunisia and Egypt Mm. and Yemen, I mean, all of this energy that's there and this energy of young people in particular, I think a lot of Americans are realizing that for all the post 9-11 coverage of the Arab world, the Muslim world, you know, all these phrases that get used, we weren't educated to see those people, to see their longings, to not be shocked by what looks like a democratic uprising. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there are sort of histories of democratic uprisings in the Middle East that certainly predate this one and struggles for democracy that absolutely predate this one. I mean, many people in this society would point to the first intifada as a popular uprising. You know, um, I mean, the struggle for a right to determination, for example, many see as very much akin to a struggle for democracy. Um, We're not, you know, Palestinians here are not struggling for an autocratic state, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for example, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm Yeah, but there are mm-hmm. so many preconceptions that go into, you know, oh, Arabs aren't ready for democracy or Muslims can't handle democracy or something mm-hmm. like this, which is a real shame. Yeah. So you're, as an anthropologist, you're actually coming at the story, right? This, the Palestinian story, the Arab story from that direction uh-huh. of who, what's going on on a human level, a social level. Yeah. Like, you know, for example, being here in the camp, um, in this refugee camp, you know, some days it's really quiet. And, you know, those are the days that certainly the journalists are not here, right? Right. Um, but it's important to be here on those days. First of all, because it's important to understanding that the, uh, it's important to understand that the politics of the situation are sometimes about it being deadly calm, really quiet about the fact that, you know, uh, many of the teenagers, uh, you know, 15 to 20 or so are, are in prison, for example. Well, that makes for quiet, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it's also about being here because, uh, for example, at night there are still arrest rates. Journalists aren't necessarily here for that either because obviously they don't usually spend the night, you know? So it's about being here for the quiet times. It's about being here for the sort of the things that just sort of erupt and take shape. Um, okay. And so tell me, describe, uh, where we are now. Right now we're in um, Lajit Center, which is a youth center organized or established in 2000. Um, and it serves the youth of Ida Refugee Camp and some other places around here. Um, so it was established by people who used to be members and active members of political parties, you know, who you know, were political prisoners, um, and then who in the 1990s became more and more disillusioned with the formal political processes and decided that if they wanted to do something to help their community, to build something for the new generation, they were going to have to start from, you know, sort of the level of the street. Um, so actually before they had this really nice center set up, um, you know, they did, they did activities in the street. Um, and then, um, like what? I think they started with things like, uh, well, they started right before the second intifada. So one of the things they wanted to do was have a scout troop that would go out and like walk in the mountains and stuff like this. That became impossible during the second intifada. That's kind of like civil society, right? Yeah, yeah. Civil uh society. Exactly. Uh Right. I mean, well, now, now, you know, we have a Dubka troop, which is a dance troop. We have a library, a computer lab. We have a media center that does all kinds of media making. Like Uh we have fantastic photography program. We have um, documentary, you know, short documentary production, digital storytelling. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there's just sort of like a lot of stuff going on here and mm -hmm. a lot of kids passing through. And I think some of it is about all those like concrete things that we make, like cool little documentary films. But a lot of it is just about having this space for kids to come together and um, also meet people 10 years older than them who can sort of talk to them about their lives in a way that their parents and teachers maybe don't. Mm. And and so and this is in the um, you say Ida or Ada Ida Ida, Ida refugee so describe the the refugee camp for me Ida refugee camp is the mid sized refugee camp in Bethlehem there's three camps here Dehesha which is the biggest and Aza camp is the smallest and Ida refugee camp the middle sized one we're right on the border of Jerusalem and Bethlehem so um, you know if you got a good arm you could throw a stone if you can get it over the wall it'll mm -hmm. be in Jerusalem mm -hmm. the the wall is about um, you know twenty thirty maybe 50 meters from here. Very, very close. Mm -hmm. um, How many people live here? 4,500 really? or about 5,000, something uh -huh. like that. And uh -huh. about, I think, more, more than half under the age of 18 or 25. I mean, a huge proportion under the age of 18. And does this date back to 1948 or right after 1948? Yeah, right after 1948. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I know in some of your work, um, talking about how... how um, journalism is done here and the messages it communicates you talk about the language and how the language is uh let's see uh, let me just um well well even the the language of a refugee camp and this uh -huh. is also an experience i'm having here uh, -huh. uh these are also communities right and as you say there's a diversity to 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 what a refugee camp looks like feels like what happens there and mm -hmm. i mean i'm experiencing um Sometimes it, it, feel, it just feels like a neighborhood, yes. right? So I think if Americans have images probably from some kind of natural disaster of a refugee camp, it, it's makeshift. Mm -hmm. Whereas these are, these are, as you say, distinct communities and very different communities. I mean, describe how you would talk about, you know, what is a refugee camp, or the right. range of that. Well, yeah. So one thing that's very different about this refugee camp compared to many that you hear about in the news is that it's about, been around for decades, right? Hmm. Um, you know, since around 1951. Um, so, you know, it started off with people living in tents. They lived in tents for between five and 10 years. And then they built these concrete houses, which were run, run, one room blocks. And then since then, you know, people have built houses and, um, and then they've built on top and top and top and top and top, letting each family sort of grow because that, they don't have any room to expand. Grow vertically. Vertically. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it used to be that every family had this little concrete block house and around it was some land and they, they used to do a little bit of farming. So people had a few, you know, a lemon tree, an olive tree, little place for vegetables like um, tomatoes and so forth. But as they had to, you know, sort of build out, all that land was taken up. Now there's, there's almost no sort of even tiny bit of open space in the camp. Um, so that's, you know, one characteristic of the camp. The other thing is that uh, each of the camps, even in the West Bank, have different characteristics. Um, you know, if you go to Balata Refugee Camp, for example, in Ida, uh, sorry, Balata Refugee Camp in Nablus, the, uh, it's so tight that you can easily push your hands out and touch two, si two houses. I mean, that's how small the alleyways are. There's mm -hmm. no, you know, there's maybe one way through the whole camp, which is much bigger than this camp, that a car can get through. Okay. So this, you know, is a kind of a comfortable, one of the more comfortable refugee camps. Mm -hmm. But it's still, you know, overcrowded, um, you know, has some, like, lack in terms of municipal services. And, I mean, the fundamental thing that makes it a refugee camp, of course, is that these are refugees, people who um, were pushed out of, you know, their villages or their their families were pushed out of the villages in 1948, not allowed to return, so dispossessed of their land. You know, many, most of these people were, you know, farmers. 
Right. And obviously now they're not. Mm-hmm. So here's a, a perhaps a s- stupid question. But um, so as you also note in your writing, um, people are not any less free to move around who live in the refugee camp than other citizens of Bethlehem, right? It's not like they're locked inside the refugee camp. Can people... Um, can people, could people move, could people move out, decide to leave? They could. Okay. Yeah, people do, certainly, you know, if they can, you know, save money to buy land or, you know, rent. Or so they could take outside. a job somewhere and and have enough money then to rent an apartment somewhere yeah. else. And then they would still, of course, be refugees and they would still have the right to return. They still have refugee status. Yeah, okay. they still have refugee status. But is part of what holds these communities together um, a collective will to move as a community back is that is that yes. the idea, uh, the 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 kind of vision that that holds it, that keeps it together as a unit? Well, I mean, I think that's what keeps together refugee identity as a whole, together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, why are people still in the camp? Most the real reason people are in the camp is because they actually can't necessarily easily go out and buy mm-hmm. um, land and build. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the politics. Certainly there is sort of a political community here in the camp, you know, a cluster of people who care about the same kinds of things and so on and so forth. But um, that's not to say that once you move, you lose that. Right. I mean, I think there yeah. is anxiety about that. Nidal's, my husband's um, sister is buying or is building a house and it's going to be really beautiful and it's on a piece of land and, you know, it's really lovely. And um, they, they're almost ready. Like, in fact, they've bought the furniture about a year ago. Are they living here now? Yeah, they live in the camp. Okay. And... Um, they bought the furniture like a year ago. It's been sitting in like the warehouse or something because they're not ready to move to the new house. Now, the the sort of stated reason is they're waiting for this road to get paved so that it'll be easy <laughs> for them to come and go to their new house. Right. But the truth is, you know, they could have moved up there, you know. Mm-hmm. I think they're reluctant in some way mm-hmm. to leave the camp. And do you live here? You uh, I live right. Here? I live in Bejala, okay. right next to the camp. Okay. Yeah, it's easier to rent in Bejala than in the camp because in the camp you are it's overcrowded first of all so there's not mm-hmm. much empty space and mm-hmm. if there is an empty apartment it's really part of a family setup you know so you'd be kind of joining a, an extended family right and there wasn't quite room in my own family my mm-hmm. husband's family mm-hmm. and so we you know we decided to rent mm-hmm. outside okay um now how long have you been married just about five years. Five years. But did you start coming here as a researcher before you were married? Oh, yeah. All yeah. right. So uh, when when did you start coming here and what, what brought you here then? What project? Can I blow my nose? Yeah, sure. Yes. That's what I'm Thanks. Very cold. Yeah, we had we were all sick for weeks before we got here. We we just got well right in time. You also got here at the right time because like it was a period of like it was very cold and like it was like forties and rainy and you know. It was kind of cold the first couple days we were here and rainy and yeah yeah. Oh, so so what? So what? How did you first start coming here as a as a researcher? So I came um, for the long period of my research in 2003 um, to work on this PhD research on the production of U.S. news about Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And was so the second intifada was underway, all of that was going on? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, you could say that the absolute worst of it was behind us. Okay. 
2020. But it was certainly going on. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd like to talk about that, about what you're doing. um, I don't know if this was the project where you're asking Palestinians to translate and critique U.S. news articles about them. (laughs) And about the Second Intifada Uh in particular. Um, So who, who did you talk, who do you talk to then? So that was a very small part of this research project. Okay, Most okay. of it was about sort of looking at journalistic collaborations. So, for example, Palestinian journalists that work with U.S. journalists as right, cameramen like and fixers have. and reporters mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah, mm-hmm. looking at those kinds of collaborations, which are obviously cross-cultural collaborations that make a huge difference for the you know possibility of producing American news, right? But that are completely kind of erased. Well, and so, and, you know, I just want to name this because, yeah. you know, I feel like in a way this whole conversation I'm having with you is so basic, uh-huh. but it's this basic information that that people don't know that, 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 as you say, doesn't get covered with spectacular headlines, um, or big news events. Um, so I think, I mean, I'm getting to understand that there may be, you know, one of the world's highest per capita proportions of journalists to citizens here, foreign journalists to citizens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you're right. So people come and we have, we have someone working with us who is indispensable. We couldn't do this without uh, a fixer you have so you have Palestinian fixers, journalists, producers, mm-hmm. reporters who work intimately with Western with all these Western journalists, yeah. right? And not just not just getting you around and helping make um, you know, do scheduling, but translating and also to a certain extent um directing, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we've this phrase that's come up since we've been here, there are no facts here, right? There, <laughs> there are so many different ways to look at any any fact yeah. or to interpret it or state it. And so you also start, you know, you, you, you see through someone's eyes. And depending on who we're with, we're seeing the same phenomenon very differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So that was exactly what I sort of came to look at. Because, you know, in the United States, it's easy to see um, a news headline, for example, with a byline. And that byline is usually an American name. And imagine that that's the person who kind of did all of this all by herself, for example. Yeah. In fact, it takes a village. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's very interesting because sometimes Palestinian journalists are criticized for being only nationalist and so on and so forth. And I was trying to paint a much more complex picture of why do journalists... Why do Palestinian journalists do the work that they do? You know, many of them did get into it because they care about um, politics, but also, you know, it's certainly actually it's a pretty good paycheck. Particularly well, yeah, during the no, Intifada. I mean, it, it's it, it's interesting work too. It's not it's just that it's work. probably um, can be can be actually reliable work and good work and and valuable work. I, I think exactly what you said about it being Exciting. interesting is yeah. absolutely critical because you know. Uh, I have a friend who is a Palestinian citizen of Israel, and she's a journalist. And, um, you know, Palestinians who are inside Israel, they don't get to come to the West Bank that much, right? I mean, they don't have a reason to, and they don't, you know, usually there's a Mm -hmm. lot of separation between these two communities, Palestinians inside Israel and Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, And I can tell from the way she talks about her work, because she's a journalist, that one of the things she loves about her work is that she knows... Nablus. And it brings Janine. her to these places. Yes, she knows yes. every little village practically. I yes. mean, and she has contacts there, you know. Um, and that's what makes it val- valuable for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, these connections are very dear mm-hmm. in this time of fracture, you know. And that's what this is. This is a time of incredible fracture, splintering, separation. Well, and that's so interesting that, that these people who are actually working, and this, I think this is also what you're getting at, the impact of the internal effect of this, because that these people who are in fact working who live in this land, mm. but who are working with journalists coming in from the outside, then become part of webs of relationship that actually defy some of those headlines. Exactly, right? Because <laughs> the, the headlines can be, of course, very polarizing. And yet sort of the, the, the things that actually produce those 
those headlines are all about networks and connections, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, for example, this journalist, uh, some of the things that, you know, even if she's making news that she doesn't agree with, sort of the, the narrative that comes out of it, she's come out of it with her relationships and her own experiences, and mm -hmm. that's very valuable. You know? So here's the way you said this. Um, uh, so journalists, you know, it's not just that journalists come in and they're working with people on the ground. They're getting quotes from mm -hmm. Palestinians, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you say, then, although these Palestinians' words are transported all over the world, they tend not to come home to roost. Mm. So in that, I suppose there's a, there's a disconnect between the, um, the impression that they may be making in the outside world and then... I, I don't know. And, and should they? I mean, do you think there should be more of a loop back? Well, you know, some of these journalists that I spoke to, Palestinians who work with foreign correspondents, said, you know, one of the downsides of my work is that when I used to work for Palestinian media, everybody knew me. You know, my headline, my byline was there, you know, every, right. every day or something like this. And now nobody knows my name. But they said, okay, this is something, a compromise I'm worth, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to make because um, I think what I'm doing is valuable. Um, do I think that circle should happen more is really an interesting question. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, it's okay to have news that's geared towards an American audience that Americans are reading. You know, mm -hmm. it's not practical for Palestinians to sit around reading all the news that's written about them. You know, they have mm -hmm. other things to do, you know, right? But um, on the other hand, I think it's good to sort of create some of these dialogues. And, you know, I spent, uh, I would say this, this center is like a second home to me. I mean, every time I come here, I stay in a different apartment that we find and we rent. But every time I come back here and I see the same, you know, many of the same people and they're a little bit, you know, especially the young ones are getting a little bit older and it's right. very exciting. You know, I mean, I've known some of these people now, you know, and I almost say kids, but I mean, I've known them for eight years. So they mm -hmm. were kids and they're not anymore. And it's really exciting. Um, and so spending time here, I realize, you know, there's a lot of voices that never make it into international media. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really important for us to hear those voices, right? Mm -hmm. Non-elite voices, uh, people who uh, have something to say about their own political experiences, but don't get the chance to say it, and Americans don't get the chance to hear it. So creating those dialogues is what I was trying to do. Um, so, so what are the... If I asked you, you know, what are the Palestinian stories you wish were being told, you long to be covered, to be truly covered? You know, what, what comes to mind? Well... Some things like I, I think you know refugee stories, um, you know, stories about uh, about loss and about uh, distance. I mean, for example, many of the refugees living in this refugee camp, they could walk to their villages in about an hour if there wasn't a wall in the way, you know, mm -hmm. and if it was legal, you know. I mean, that's a really intimate relationship with a place that's completely taken out of their lives in, in a physical sense. You know, I mean, they, they're really close and they know it and yet they can't, you know, they can't get there. Right. So mm -hmm. those are some of the stories, I think stories of, of villages, you don't get, you know, that much, um, you know, stories about agriculture, about growing things in this land and you what mean that of, means to people of thriving villages or yeah. just functioning villages, functioning, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. right. Getting yeah. by, you yeah. know, uh, getting by on, you know, raising, um, the, the, just now it's the season of, um, of what they call Zahar Beladi. It's like the, the, a kind of cauliflower that's, um, local. It's a little bit yellow if you see it in the markets. Um, it takes nine months oh, to I've grow. Oh, I've seen that. It grows that yellow? It grows yellow. Oh, I thought it was pickled or something. Oh. And it takes nine months to grow. You put a seed in the ground in May, and you harvest it in February. And it doesn't require any irrigation water. And that's why it's 
Oh. That's why it's grown here. That's one of the reasons it's grown here, you know? Um, so, I mean, you think about, I mean, I just had a baby, right? So, you know, a, a cauliflower <laughs> that takes nine months to grow, you yeah. know, yeah. is really lovely. Uh-huh. Uh, and they taste better and people really enjoy that, you know? Um, so, yeah, some, thinking about some of those stories. Now, I'm not saying that American audiences have to hear these stories. Obviously, nobody needs to hear no, about those this are just, nice they're stories of they're, they're stories of life. Yes. Whereas we often, the stories we hear are of destruction and death, honestly. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I want to come back to even a term like refugee. Uh-huh. Um, there's a reality to that that, that, uh, that deserves expression, right? But I think that... Um, uh, the, the the language of refugee, uh, especially in an American ear where that mm-hmm. experience is so foreign these days, mm-hmm. maybe not a couple hundred years ago, but you know right. now, it is the language of victimhood. Mm-hmm. And I don't experience the whole Palestinian ex- reality, the human reality, to be one that's just victimhood, right? I'm happy to hear you say that. Because a few years ago, I think for a journalist coming here, one might have been bombarded by stories of victimhood. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I'm really happy to hear you come here and you know hear that you've come here and say that you know actually there's a lot more going on. I think that's great. Um, I, mean, I mean, what I'm not saying is that there's not a tragedy that's real, right? Right. And there's not suffering that's real, but that's different from saying we are we are only victims. Right? Well, I mean, I think people would say you know refugee is not just a language of victimhood; it's also a language of rights. Mm-hmm. I think people would be very clear about mm-hmm. that, okay. you know? Yeah. It's about a right to return. It's about a right to, you know, um, go back to the villages where our grandfathers were born. I think many people would say that. Okay. Um, yeah. But I still don't think it, it, it as, a, as the only defining word on a human being, they are a refugee. It's not enough. No. I mean, even if, it, even if, as you say, the word itself holds, you know, ne- it's necessary. But it's one descriptor. You know what I'm getting at? Absolutely. I mean, it's a political identity. You know, I mean, Americans don't walk around necessarily thinking, I'm a citizen, right? Right. (laughs) But that's sort of what, I mean, and I would say, like, and so, you know, you're a citizen and you're a parent and you're somebody's child and you do this for a living and you write and you have these thoughts, right? Oh, yeah. Uh Absolutely. And that's very true here as Uh well. I mean, honestly, I I also am feeling uh, a lot of these descriptors. Refugee camp, for example. Mm-hmm. We, you know, this is a place where people live. It's mm-hmm. a neighborhood, and there are different kinds of neighborhoods, in addition to being a refugee camp with, mm-hmm. with those restrictions. I also feel like the language of settlements mm-hmm. is, obscures the reality of, you know, when you see these settlements. I think both a refugee camp and a settlement, I'm talking about the Israeli mm-hmm. settlements, you know, Americans might imagine tent cities in both cases. Huh, interesting. And not, you know, the, the settlements are these gleaming, they mm-hmm. look like suburban condominium Developments, oh, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm very intrigued by how I think the language, you know, even some of the really basic vocabulary, obscures the story. Yeah. It's like we need to just keep on unpeeling the layers of what these yeah. words mean and what they mean to different people. So, for example, in Bethlehem, right. if you ask somebody, if you just run into somebody on the street and you know, ask them what their impression of, it, of a refugee camp is, it's going to be very similar to if you depending on who you stop on the street. If mm-hmm. you ask, you know, sort of a, a person who's not a camp resident, doesn't have friends and family there, they're going to think of it maybe in some of the similar terms that if you stop somebody in Manhattan and ask them about uh, what the South Bronx is like, you know. Right, right. Yeah, so mm-hmm. these these places have a lot of different connotations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to just give some examples of some of the uh, 
some of what you learned and got out of your research, um, there was the example of how Arafat's funeral was uh-huh. uh, covered and described. Um, why don't you just tell that story of different ways Palestinians experience that coverage? Mm-hmm. So Arafat's funeral... Um, it set the scene, too. Okay. Yeah, you may remember. it was Okay, so Arafat had been sort of besieged in this compound for two years or so. I may actually be getting that number wrong. And um, eventually... Uh, he became ill, and he was finally allowed to leave. Basically, Israeli authorities had threatened him. If he leaves the compound, something will happen, right? So he leaves. He goes to Paris for treatment um, and, and dies. Um, in Paris, they had, you know, kind of a military funeral or some kind of a, you know, a, a, a sort of diplomat's funeral for him. In Egypt, the same kind of a thing. Then he comes back uh, here for, you know, his, his body final flung funeral. back here? His body is uh-huh. flung back here, right? Um, and... Um, in sort of preparation, Palestinians hear that he's passed away and that he's going to come, you know, his body's going to be brought back here for burial. Um, people came sort of from all these different cities, came into Bethlehem to be part of this event. I'm uh, sorry, excuse me. They came into Ramallah to be part of this event, right? So I have friends here from um, Bethlehem who walked most of the way mm. over the desert hills to get to this funeral, right? Um and uh, when they got there, the Mukata, the Arafat's headquarters, which is where he was going to be buried, is this sort of big open square, right? Now, Arafat had wanted to be buried in Jerusalem, but that was um, impossible. Israeli uh, authorities were not going to allow that. So instead, they said they're going to have a temporary bureau in the Mukata, which is the same place where he was besieged for years before his death. Okay. doesn't sound that nice, right? So, and in addition, like I said, there's this big open space. And according to the Palestinian authorities... They're going to, you know, have dignitaries there and they're going to, you know, put him into the ground. And then after that, they're going to allow for a receiving line to pass by it. Okay. Well, the, the problem with that is that's not a Palestinian funeral at all. A Palestinian <laughs> funeral is taking a body through the streets, usually from, uh, you know, the mosque or from the center of the town out to a cemetery, right? It involves a lot of people, you know, hundreds of people walking behind. I mean, and for somebody like... Arafat, obviously, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people wanted to participate. Okay, so down come the helicopters landing in the Mukata, in this open space. And already there are Palestinians sort of literally standing on the walls of this compound. And there, I was standing on a roof nearby, you know, overlooking the whole thing. I mean, there's people everywhere. Every inch of ground is covered. And it's, it's sort of funny because there's this sort of conspicuous open space you know it's like how is this going to happen you know yeah. okay well obviously you know it, it palestinians you know entered the space they wanted to be a part of this event they didn't want to be standing you know 50 yards away um uh and you know i think there was a fear from the palestinian authorities that they were going to carry arafat's body off to jerusalem okay. you know <laughs> that they were just going to do what they should you know what according to a palestinian funeral what you would do which is to carry a body from one place to the place where you know He's meant to rest, right? Obviously, that would have created huge problems um, at the checkpoint for the Palestinian authorities and for Israeli authorities. Right, um, right, right. Um, so that's probably what they're trying to prevent. So anyway, this open space is no longer open. It's full of people, and there's, like, firing guns in the air, which, again, is sort of a, you know, one can interpret as a salute. A lot of people do criticize this firing in the air because it can be dangerous. You know, mm-hmm. people do get injured from the bullets mm-hmm. when they come back down. Um so the narrative written about this in the American media was absolutely one of chaos, of danger, of threat, of, you know, the era of the era of Arafat, you know, 
pervaded during his funeral. You know, we're hoping a new era will be born, which is much more organized and so on and so forth. But right now, you know, this is Arafat's time and he would have liked the funeral because it was chaotic like him, right? (laughs) Um, so folda is the word for chaos, and it's sort of a key word here, too. People use it a lot when they talk about politics um, and other things, you know, like mm-hmm. youth center events, for example. Folda is a big, important word here. Um, so when I interviewed people about articles um, written about the funeral, what I did was I had U.S. a few key articles about the funeral translated from English into Arabic, and I gave them to a bunch of people to read. Um, and then I did sort of like longish interviews, like, you mm-hmm. know, about a short article. Um, and we got into long conversations about this word chaos, mm-hmm. um, and what it meant. And I was, re- I was really fascinated. So for example, one, or maybe a couple of people, uh, felt like this, like this was a good way to identify something. What was it that, that, uh, they might explain it differently than the journalist, but that, that it it put a finger on something in Palestinian culture as it's evolved, that it's revolutionary as mm-hmm. opposed to democratic, um, which was actually, it seemed like it was an important insight for them to, to hear it that way. Right. And that was one reaction. I mean, right. That there was never a sort of a, that, that things had been too sort of militant and, 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 and revolutionary and not institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And if it was institutionalized, then perhaps there could be more stability and so on and so forth. And, and the, right. the funeral would have been more orderly. Uh-huh. So there was that critique that some people identified. Yeah. And then other people said, no, 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 no. This was a, a, a beautiful chaos, a, right. a productive chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the chaos of people taking back their streets, basically, and trying to take back an event that, in fact, you know, I mean... Arafat had been a leader for 40 years or something like this, right? So for, for them to participate in his funeral is, is a really important thing, right? So if you think about participation as a key democratic virtue or practice, you know, then in fact, jumping into the middle of that square and trying to participate in the event was, you know, a key right. uh, democratic thing to do. It's interesting. Yeah, I could see it both ways, you know. So I want to know how... Um... Al Jazeera then has what has Al Jazeera added to this dynamic of um, journalism and and also how journalism uh, kind of circles back to to Palestinian self understanding. Mm. Yeah, Al Jazeera has been absolutely critical to remaking the way people think about um, and or at least the way people are able to receive their news. That's- I mean, Palestinian newspapers are not as important. At all, as, as Al, Al Jazeera or radio. No, you know, the, Al Jazeera is absolutely the most popular sort of way people get their so news. So I have to say that I've been watching Al Jazeera English here. Mm-hmm. I've watched it before, but I'm really watching it a lot now. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's almost indistinguishable from the BBC, what's mm-hmm. surprising me. And, I don't, and I'm assuming <laughs> that there's a difference between Al Jazeera English and, and, um, and the Arabic service. But, for example... There were big. Uh, there was the March fifteenth demonstration on the streets of Gaza and some other cities, uh-huh. which, which was a reaction, uh, which was planned in reaction to the uprising in Egypt, mm-hmm. and it was a day of unity. But it was, you know, it was number six or seven on in the news headlines in Al Jazeera English, which surprised me. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Would that be? played differently in the Arabic service in what people are watching here? I didn't get to watch Al Jazeera yesterday because my satellite service was down, unfortunately. Uh Um, But um, 
Al Jazeera Arabic is definitely different than Al Jazeera English. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have been sort of seen as a political actor, not only in Egypt and Tunis and other places, but here. You know, um, the, the just a few weeks ago, there was this um, Palestine Papers leak of um, Al Jazeera leaked all these documents of Palestinian negotiators mm -hmm. and um, uh, partisans from Fatah uh, attacked the Al Jazeera office, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because they, they saw it as critical of of them, which it was critical of them. Mm -hmm. um, so Al Jazeera is definitely seen as sort of part of part of the story here. It's part of the story, and it's political, but not in a in a predictable or comfortable way. Right? Not I mean, in a comfortable way. Yeah. No, I mean I think you know um, what what is the model of journalism that we there's an implicit comparison all the time of you know Al Jazeera or any other news media to you know some uh, outside objective standard that. That is the way we should do news. And I think, you know, I mean, that model is being questioned in the United States, you know, yeah, and right. And it's being and it's being done differently here as well. You know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. do you do you see Al Jazeera? And I mean, I'm asking you this also as somebody who's done all the research you've done. Mm -hmm. um, do you see Al Jazeera and also the way Al Jazeera is maturing and evolving, which it is mm -hmm. um, as reflective of something that's going on in the larger society? Um, is it part of civil society forming in a different way? Well, you know, I think one interesting question, particularly about the Palestinian context, is what does it mean to have a really good, you know, really strong satellite news station that has been able to cover governments in a much more critical way than any other outlet has, you know, for, you know, in, in Arab media, um, to do it in, in a high quality way. You know, these are people who came from BBC Arabic, yes. many of them, yes. you know, high, high quality. What does it mean to have that and to still not have high quality Palestinian journalism? Okay. You know, it's not enough in a sense to have this So it becomes one, a standard to hold oneself to, maybe. Not or, just a standard to hold oneself. Also, like, what would it mean to have, for example, uh, NPR National doing their stories and not to have any of the local stations doing their reporting? Okay. okay. I mean, it's a problem. It's a problem to have a really... It's, it's, a, it's great to have this excellent mm -hmm. satellite station, but, you know, there need to be Palestinian so kind news of outlets It presents well. a challenge to create regional... A, a different level of regional journalism. Yeah. I mean, there's still uh -huh. a gap there, yeah. you know, and that gap continues both because of financial constraints on Palestinian journalism and also because of political constraints on Palestinian journalism. Mm -hmm. In other words, all the ways that Al Jazeera has been pushing the buttons on Palestinian leaders and so on and so forth has not allowed for Palestinian television and radio and so on and so forth to, um, and internet sources to fully you know, break down those barriers that continue to constrain them. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. You know, mm -hmm. we, you know, um, it's a problem, but it's the kind of problem that once it's made visible becomes a pressure because you know, it puts pressure uh, on the society to create those structures. Right. But or it should, but, I mean, it's yeah. been 15 years, you know, or more. Yeah. And I think the thing is that, uh, you know, the PA has become more repressive of journalists and not less. Mm hmm in the last several years. Mm -hmm. And that's a major problem. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, a lot of international donor funding has come in to support Palestinian um, news organizations, particularly, you know, internet ones and so on and so forth. Um, but still a lot of PA sort of constraints on what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't have good international news um, coverage of national stories and expect that to be enough. You also have to have good national covers of na national coverage of national stories yeah, no. and local coverage of local stories. I think that analogy of NPR and regional stations is really, really helpful for an yeah. American imagination. Um, so I think I just want to finish with um, 
asking you about now. Yeah, are you living here now? Uh huh. And for are you permanently, indefinitely, or no, no? Okay, six or seven months. How long have you been here? Living uh, here six weeks. And like that. okay, so your 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 daughter wasn't born here. No, no. Okay, but you have you are living here and and you're living here as a mother, which uh-huh. is your your relative. That's a relatively new experience yes. for you. Uh, you know, um, just t- tell me how you think about that and. Uh, what 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 this experience of living here and living here as a mother has maybe added in terms of a layer of your comprehension to this, and also you know and I think this question is related you know what 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 makes you despair, uh-huh. and and what are your sources of hope, um, being here in the midst of this well, place? Well, I have to say that I feel that in every way it's a privilege. I am in a privileged position being here. I am privileged to have a kind of a job that allows me to travel and do in-depth research for months and months. I mean, I'm a university professor on sabbatical. Um, and to do that as a new mother is is actually a special privilege. I mean, I have my daughter here, and sometimes she can come on the research trips and see the new spring baby animals and how fun that is when mm-hmm. I go out to check out the cauliflower and I get to take her along, for example, right? Um, and it's a pl- privilege to have her meet her family and to get to spend a lot of time with them. Um, I, as an American, am incredibly privileged to be able to move throughout this country as pretty much no one else can. Right. Um, That's huge, Palestine, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Palestinians from the West Bank can't go inside, and Gaza obviously can't. Mm-hmm. Um, Palestinians from inside Israel don't really mm-hmm. come here much. And Israelis can't move freely in the same way either. That's right. Yeah. They don't. They don't move. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing about it for me is it's not at all a comfortable privilege. <laughs> uh, psychologically, emotionally, even physically, um, you know, nobody, very few people move the way I do. And so there's no infrastructure, for example, to move the way I do, you know, taking Mm. these buses and walking and, you know, check crossing the checkpoint and hiring cabs and patching a way to go from one place to the other in these routes that very few people are traveling, you know, uh, coming home to tell people about it. Um, it's, it's exhausting. And it's uncomfortable, but I'm really, really happy to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest anxiety in the weeks before I came here with my daughter was, I mean, I'm used to being here and I I, I appreciate it very much. And mm-hmm. there are small discomforts as well, you know, physical discomforts and so on and so forth. But I'm used to it. I was a little anxious taking my daughter here. Uh, one of the things that made me most anxious was to be in, I just imagined, what is it going to be like for me to be in Jerusalem with all of those armed settler types and my infant daughter? You know, uh, I feel that there's a element of danger there. Um, you know, maybe not, maybe it's not a completely rational fear, but why would I want my, I mean, I'm coming from, you know, Massachusetts and, mm-hmm. you know, the wonderful cities of Somerville and Cambridge and Massachusetts. It's very, you know, feels very safe and comfortable there. And to come to this place where I have to see my daughter next to a, an automatic weapon is really makes me very angry. It makes me very sad. It makes me very uncomfortable. Um, so I haven't gotten over that yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, I took the train with my daughter and I was trying to find a seat where I wouldn't have to be sitting next to a soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, I took the drain with my daughter and it was very strange because, um, that's my main, aside from my experience with family, public transportation is one of my main experiences of Israeli society. 
Um, so, you know, everybody likes to play with my daughter because she's really fun and <laughs> right. sweet. So there I am in a long train ride, right? And it's not easy. You know, and I'm doing this all by myself because my husband can't go inside Israel. So um, handling this, you know, very squirmy, active, sweet, you know, six, seven month old. And everybody wants to make eyes and Google and play. And I'm hesitant about whether I want her making eyes at the soldiers, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Then on the last leg of the journey, um, I was across the way from two women who I think were Arab, Jewish, gay, poor women. That was my, that was how I blocked them out from their yeah. appearance. And also they spoke, they seemed to speak no English and they were speaking all Hebrew. Okay. And I, you know, was anxious about her immune system as a mother is, right? So I didn't want to pass her around to, ba- you know, to different people. Right. These women were like, give us your baby, give us your baby. I was like, no, I'm not going to give you my baby. It's really nothing personal. I just sort of tried to say nothing because we had no language. So I was like, you know, but anyway, she got so squirmy and so on and so forth. And I was, and they just kept on making eyes and smiling. And she, my, my daughter was smiling back and I was like, okay, take the baby. <laughs> so she had a really nice, um, I think time with these women. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was a good connection. So, you know, I keep hearing from people, I think again, from the outside, it feels like a situation of total despair and the peace process is locked and it. I don't experience people here to be without hope, though. And I almost see people pointing at these weird, these human encounters like that as somehow seeds of what might and must one day come about. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, the things that give me hope and pleasure here, and I, and I have to say pleasure more than hope. Mm-hmm. unfortunately, are kind of the things that happen with the people that I care about and the people that I've known for a long time and or meeting a new person who's able to sort of tell me something in a really dynamic, interesting way, um, uh, getting to enjoy sort of the change of the seasons here mm-hmm. is something that I, I mean, I'm often here in the summer and again, I just feel like it's a tremendous privilege to be here in the winter and the spring mm-hmm. and enjoy the, the cauliflower and then the almonds and then the chickpeas and then the you know, there are these things called faus, which is a kind of a cucumber. It's kind mm. of between a cucumber and a squash. I mean, I love all these seasons. This is what I take great pleasure in. Um, in terms of hope for long-term politics, I mean, I, I do hope that things will work, you know, can start to straighten themselves out. Um, on the ground, you don't see so much that is encouraging. Um, I mean, I, I'm happy to hear a lot of people talking about, uh, hope for one democratic secular state or one democratic multicultural state that gives me hope to hear more and more talk about that Mm -hmm. okay thank you so much thanks yeah